This week's episode of the Weekly General Meeting podcast is brought to you by the good people at Amy Schumer. Amy Schumer is playing the Three Arena uh, in Dublin on uh, Friday, August 26, 2016, during your stand-up show. You you know who Amy Schumer is. Um, you know this is going to be a great show. She's the uh, creator and star of her own Comedy Central show, Inside Amy Schumer. Uh, she is the writer and star of the recent Judd Apatow movie, Trainwreck. Uh, which is really funny as well. So this is a this is a really unique opportunity to actually get to see her performing her stand-up live. And I think you should take it. And the way to do that is to log on to ticketmaster.ie, type in the name Amy Schumer, and the link will come up and you go and you buy your tickets. Uh, so yeah, so that's Amy Schumer playing the Three Arena in Dublin on Friday the 26th of August 2016. That's the ad. And now on with the show. Welcome to the Weekly General Meeting, a podcast about creativity. I am one of your hosts, Shane Langan, and opposite me sitting in the studio is the other host, Neil Conlon. Hello, Neil. Hello, I'm the other host. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I just found a flat. <laughs> I just found a flat. Remember, remember, um, remember like two weeks ago on the podcast, I was talking about how I was looking for a flat? Yeah, you and, could forget. Yeah, and I found a flat. I thought, remember when I came in earlier and said we should talk about how I found a flat because all the listeners are going to be invested in my flat search. And this is what is happening now. And now I'm just telling you that I found a flat so everyone can relax. If you want any details of Shane's flat, tweet us at the Weekly GM. And I will tell you some details about it. Just tweet me, I'll tell you where it is. You don't know where it is, but you're coming to help me move in, aren't you? Apparently You're going to help me schlep uh, my couch up four flights of stairs. Four flights of stairs. I can't believe you it's, just told me that half an hour ago. You didn't tell me that last week. Well, you know. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm happy to help. I'm okay, happy to good. help. Good, okay. Well, anyway, let's not get into it now. Anyway, half a flat, great stuff. It's going to be Congrats brilliant. to Shane. Well done, Shane. Thanks. You're a great young player. What's on the show this week, Neil? Uh, on the show this week is an interview with one of my favourite um, actors, Peter MacDonald, who is the only Academy Award nominated guest we have had on the podcast. I would certainly assume so without having looked at the details that that is absolutely the case. Yeah. 100%. We, we showed the film that he was nominated for, Pentecost, at the monthly general meeting event in Dublin that we had in the Unitarian Church. Stephen Screen, yes. That was a good night. Yeah. Do you, do you remember it was Lashing Rain and somebody got shot in Dublin that night? Oh. Do you remember? I, I remember it was Lashing Rain. Yeah. It was really wet. Like, yeah. we brought socks. We, we, bought, we went to Pennies and bought, like, about... like. 12 pairs of socks to give to throw out to people oh, yeah. in the audience did we ever do that we, I just told you we did that no I remember we bought them I just don't remember giving them to anyone so we like bought 12 socks and then brought them home I think they might still be there no 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 I, I remember like throwing them into the crowd like like, oh, a, like a guy who was like throwing so- they were fresh socks no, they were I brand know th- new socks I don't understand I know that but if you're like I, I know I know I remember them being new socks but if you're in an audience and some fuckers throwing <laughs> socks at you you're thinking oh great fresh socks though like I might as well be throwing anything hey listen the show well, is what free happen- what happens to the socks after 
or what they may smell like after I throw them or they're used for the first time is not that's not on me that's not on you look it was a nice gesture <laughs> and I think a lot of people appreciated it I think so too going back to our guest Peter MacDonald um, the first time I ever saw him was in the film I Went Down such a good film it's an amazing film so. he, where he played a Git Hines you might remember um that is Conor McPherson's first feature film. Um, I'll take your word for that. Uh, Conor McPherson is one of Ireland's best playwrights, best-known playwrights. Wrote The mm. Weir, absolutely amazing writer. I saw Peter MacDonald in The Weir here in Dublin uh, last year, or maybe it was the year before. It was amazing, though. No way. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, well, incredible. since then, he's been in lots of films, including uh, Titanic, um, The Damned United... The Damned United, he plays Johnny Giles. Giles. Do you remember that? Yeah. Oh, that's so good. That's such a good film. And then The Stag in 2013 where he played The Machine. Um, He also was in uh, some brilliant Irish TV shows like Paths to Freedom. Um, He was in Ripper Street. He co-wrote Your Bad Self with John Butler who's uh, and Donald Gleeson, two ex-guests of the podcast that you can check out in previous episodes. Um, I started this interview by asking Peter... Um, where and how he broke into the industry. And this is what he said. Yeah, I, I was in UCD in um, 1990 to 93. And um, <clears throat> at that time, um, got involved in the Drama Society. And like all those societies, you know, there's always a, you always have to break into a clique, you know, because it's just a series of different cliques. And, uh, I met a bunch of guys and uh, some girls who, you know, I felt natural affinity with. And they had already actually started to uh, form a theatre company called Five and Night Theatre Company. Um, and they included uh, three or four actors, um, a writer called Colin O'Connor, and a writer called Colin McPherson, and um, a couple of actresses. And they were doing plays at lunchtime in the international bar in the summer um, when, you know, you get like four Spanish tourists, a couple of Germans, and uh, just people who kind of wandered in off the street, um, some really crazy fuckers. And um, they, uh, <laughs> we were on stage acting our little hearts out. One of the plays was a hit, a play called Radio Play. But... Um, the rest of the time we were on a stage probably like, you know what it's like in the international bar. And, you know, in the summer heat at lunchtime. Um, uh, and then we graduated onto the City Arts Centre and the Crypt in Dublin and we were doing plays there. But the, the remit of the, the theatre company, for, from our point of view, was that we would only do new writing, because that's such a great commercial decision, <laughs> um, of um, Colin and... Uh, Connor. Um, so we basically only did their plays. Um, so it was kind of like being in a band. It was like being in a gang. Um, and nobody was in charge and everyone was in charge. And um, that's how I started out. And then I started acting in other fringe shows around Dublin. And uh, I started making, doing some short films as well. I made a, a series of short films with uh, the director, John Carney. You know, John? Made once, went once, yeah, yeah. and uh, we made a film called um, that I, no one has ever seen, um, but we thought it was our ticket to what the big time. <laughs> it, it, it was called "Have You Ever Heard of Jimi Hendrix?" and uh, 
it was about a busker on Grafton Street, uh, played by me, and uh, he was an obsessive Jimi Hendrix guitar player and fan, and he falls in love with a woman who's obsessed with jazz. What? Yeah, and I, I went words. out onto Grafton Street with a uh, hundred watt PV amp and uh, a, a Fender Telecaster, uh, Stratocaster, and played Foxy Lady. Um, <laughs> Opposite Switzers, that's how long ago it is. <laughs> and uh, out of my mind, like my, the character was uh, drunk and uh, I had random bits of hair shaved out of my head and uh, his name was Sandy, that was his name. And he used to sing Foxy fucking lady, you know? <laughs> and um, it was a really good little short film. I always remember the first line I had to say to her was, oh, I was thinking of going to Moscow for a couple of days. John just said, that's the perfect opening line. opening line to a short film. Nobody will know what the fuck is going on. So, uh, and that was with an actress called Valerie Spellman. We put our heart and soul into it. We built a little shack where he lived and everything. And um, then we brought it over to London. And uh, we tried to get funding from the film board and all this kind of stuff. This is like 1992 or something. So um, we didn't get anywhere with it. We wanted to remake it with a better budget. And then we went on, we actually went on, myself and John, to make fake porn movies. Um, where, you know, when growing up as kids in Dublin, it was all like, uh, oh yeah, John's got, got a Swedish porn video, you know. And the only way you could see porn then was you'd go around to someone's house, you know, and there'd be like 15 guys watching this together in a room. And uh, going, to press pause, rewind. And, um, and it was gold because you couldn't tape the, you couldn't make copies of it and everything like this. Uh, I mean, God knows what kids are up to today. But um, <laughs> I mean, just a click of a, you know, a mouse and the world as you always do. But, uh, so we, but in all those films, because they were so shit and overdubbed, there were loads of um, uh, con uh, continuity inconsistencies, especially on the sound, the overdub soundtrack. So we, we made it two films where we made, a, you know, this was the joke. Um, one of them was one of the funniest things I've ever done in my life. Like, is one of the funniest things I've ever been in in my life. Um, it was called Hot Fun. I don't know why I'm telling you all this. It's, it's great. Uh, and, um, yeah, and then, uh, am I still answering the first question? Or this do you want me to? Brilliant, is it? It's ask the most low, low maintenance Q&A um, ever. I guess I got my first break. My first real, like, because, you know, I was essentially an actor then, but, you know, it was very hard to make money as an actor. Uh, the first kind of proper break I got then was um, I got a lead part in a film called I Went Down um, with Brendan Gleeson. And um, we, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Still has its fans. Um, and uh, what happened with that film was... Um, Connor McPherson had written the script for it, but um, I wasn't anyone at the time. And um, uh, there was more pressure on people to um, cast one of the young bucks who was around who kind of maybe made a bit more noise than I had at that stage. Can we name that person? And, well, there was like six or seven of them, you know, and they were all really good. Actors That's still. really diplomatic. Well, can we name the six or seven people? Um, I can't remember. No, I can't actually. No. No, no. Uh, 
because they're all friends of mine, mostly. Um, and uh, the, the director, uh, Paddy Branagh, who's a great director and has a film coming out, um, hopefully next year, the beginning of next year, his first feature for a long time. Um, he hired me to read the actresses and actors coming into the room um, because he had met me socially in the pub and had seen me, you know, messing around with Connor and doing voices and all this kind of stuff. So I played Bunny Kelly in the room against all the actors coming in. And then I played the character Gitines, who I ended up playing against all the actresses who were um, auditioning. And um, I did that for like two weeks and then didn't hear anything. I mean, I just got paid. And then like two, five weeks later, um, um, I met Paddy in the pub and he said, will you come in for the film? And so then that began a series of very lengthy auditions. And uh, then I eventually ended up reading with Brendan. So I got that part and that was, once I got that, then I, from that point on, I, I kind of was, uh, I've, I've never had to have another job than, than acting. So, you know, I was full-time. Like, so for the last... Economically, I was full-time at that stage, yeah. That's two decades worth of work, really. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's a rarity. Yeah. So what, what drove you into that career? I mean, obviously you were part of a drama society in college, and I had to pretend that I didn't know that you were in Fly By Night. Okay, yeah, yeah, but question. you did that really well. Thanks, man. Yeah, really yeah. Good. I was kind of like, this guy hasn't done any this research whatsoever. Uh, this is going to be a long night. No. <laughs> I'm no, I knew with, uh, Connor McPherson as well. Like, and I, I, I can't imagine how important it was to be part of like a, a nascent small movement when you were students that blossomed into something so great. I mean, you, like you've, you've obviously you played so many great roles, Glenn Gary, Glenn, Glenn Ross, yeah, yeah. Kind of the weird, loads yeah. of really great roles. But like, what drove you to, cho to choose being an actor and a writer instead of taking, you know, for want of a better word, a proper job? I just don't, um, I, there was no other choice, really. You know, I just knew that that was what I wanted to do. And I was probably going to do it until, you know, people kind of gathered around me for an intervention and said, Pete, you can't do this anymore. <laughs> Nobody wants to see you, you know, <laughs> or, you know, you're living on the streets, you know. So, uh, um, and at that age, uh, yeah, yeah, there is definitely in your head, you're thinking, how the hell am I going to, you know, have a life doing this? Um, uh, but at the same time, you just, you have to have a passion for it and kind of think, Jesus, if I don't do this, I won't be happy, you know? So I think um, the choice was kind of just unconsciously made in my mind that that's what I was going to do. Having said that, though, it is great when you meet other people your age who are going at it with the same conviction and uh, the same sense of purpose because if you don't have those people around you, you are kind of acting on your own. You know, you're, you're in a bit of a vacuum. And, you know, um, I met a few people like that at that time, Connor being one of them, um, and all the guys in Fly By Night. But Connor was like, by the time I, he was a year ahead of me in UCD, he'd all written, already written like three plays and put them on. And by the time he finished college, he'd written like eight. 
And he was just like, oh, I'm going to be a writer. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be shit. You know, this is my life. Um, so, you know, you get on board with that feeling. And also, we were young, and you think, fuck the Abbey, you know, fuck the gay, you know, we're going to do was, our Was thing. that part of your thinking? Because, you, like, you essentially set up your own thing in the international bar. Obviously, you moved on to different venues, but it was a conscious decision not to either... Either it was a conscious decision on your part not to be part of what you would see as the establishments in theatrical cir- circles in Dublin, yeah. or you know maybe you were never able to join that movement. What what was that like as a, like a as a, someone in their early twenties that's an actor or a creative that f- that has come out of college that you're putting on plays. You're a writer as well as an actor. You're trying to create your own material. Yeah. Did you choose not to be a part of that scene, or was it never an option? Well, I think, <laughs> to be honest, it was a mixture of um, feeling kind of protected and uh, um, buoyed up by the people in the group with you, um, and also the fact that you wouldn't get a part in one of those places. You know, you hadn't kind of got enough of a kind of leg, um, kind of track record to get good parts in those places. And also then, a part of it is you're, you know, you're younger and you go to see something in the Abbey and you go, fucking shit, it's not real theatre. You know, what we're doing is so much stronger and stuff like that. And there's a lot of truth to that. And then, of course, a lot of it is just being kind of young and spunky, you know. I'm still spunky, but, you know, <laughs> I'm just not so young anymore. Um, but that's essential, you know, and I think you have to keep that always, you know, uh, um, uh, in, in terms of artistic temperament. Well, let me ask you this, right? So over the last couple of years, you've, you've, or the last couple of decades, you've had some memorable roles. Yeah. You know, we saw one there, like probably the, the, one of the most recent is Lee Moon. Yeah. All the way back 10 years ago, Tomo and Paths of Freedom, you've had some amazing yeah. roles. You co-created one of my favorite Irish sketch shows, which is Your Bad Self. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic yeah. sketch show. What would you say over the course of those years since like 1992 when you started that theatre group to now, what would be the highlight of your career and what would have been the lowest point and what have you learned from both of those? Um, I think the highlight of my career is, I think some of the, uh, some of the stage stuff I've done has been really fantastic it's been very fulfilling for me and I've had some great roles uh, in very good theatres with good directors Um, uh, if I were to split it between stage and screen um, but okay I'll answer it more directly I think um, since I started writing and directing films and um, and also being in the stag and being part of the the whole production of that um, one of the most fulfilling things I've had is watching uh, my short film or watching the stag with large audiences in very good venues and just watching them get it, watching them laugh and be quiet at the right places and feel moved, um, which is why you do it, you know, and come away from the experience thinking, hey, I really enjoyed that. Um, I got something out of it uh, because when you're uh, an actor, you're you come onto the process after the idea has been spawned and 
there's been a producer on, you've developed it, and blah, 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 you come in at a certain stage um, to bring life into the thing. Um, whereas in the case of Pentecost, my short and other short films have made and the stag, I was there at the very, when there was like thin air. And then the next thing is you're talking about an idea. And the next thing is you've written a fool's cap page of notes, which turns into 20 pages of development, which turns into a script, which turns into trying to see if we can get the money, you know, the whole process, every step of the way the whole post-production process and everything like that. And the first time you show a film, even in the edit suites, um, I remember John and myself showing the stag to, you know, some runners in Windmill Lane, you know, come in here and have a look at this, you know, we'll give you a snick, you know, snicker bar, <laughs> cup of tea, and uh, you don't have to work for a couple hours. And they sit down, there's like two or three of them, they're probably like 19, 20. Your heart is in your mouth. Because you're going, Jesus Christ, you know, nobody's seen this except for us. Uh, and, um, and you go from that to seeing it being appreciated um, is kind of deep down fulfilling all the way through. Because if it's acting in it or, you know, because you've written, co-written or you've directed in the case of the short. Um, I think that's the most fulfilling. The lowest point... Um, I know it's not a, an easy thing to answer, but... No, no, I'm thinking in terms of career. I, you know, every actor, I suppose, you know, sometimes you get the phone call going, hey, you're not going to believe this, but uh, they want you to play a part. And uh, then you get the ring and they go, you know, I'm sorry, it's not going to work out this time. Every actor has that. And um, it's just, you know, you get used to it. And also you understand that, you know, casting is part, it's part of its look, part of its profile, part of its also just an artistic decision. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, do you feel like in a situation like that, when you don't get a role, the only thing you can do is offer the best version of yourself, and if they happen to not go for that, then they'll never go for that. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I, no, I, I never think, oh, I blew the audition. Yeah. You know, um, you know, on some level, you might think that, but you can't think that because you can never. Um, I mean, audition rooms are kind of weird places to be, and some directors are good at auditioning people, and some are very bad, and um, and you never know what they're looking for. But when you're acting, you can't be thinking about how it's going while you're acting. You have to enter into it. You have to step off the plank, and you can never think, "Oh, this is." Shit, or this is a big because you can't be aware of that. You just have to go for it. Um, even if you're playing a very low character, you know, you just have to just completely get rid of all self consciousness in relation to something like that. I, and, you know, the moment you enter that, put that into your performance, it's not working. Um, but I do, I, I suppose I did do a play, uh, <laughs> I got offered a nice part in a play around uh, eight years ago in um, the Old Vic Theatre with, um, and Robert Altman was directing us, um, the film director. And uh, like, he's one of my, you know, top 10 film directors, you know, whatever. And uh, I was really excited about working with him. And he was a great guy, a really great guy, um, nuts. Um, he's passed on uh, unfortunately. But this was a famously uh, disastrous production. And on the first day <laughs> of rehearsals, we were sitting around the um, table, and uh, do you know who Maximilian Schell was? He's uh, an Austrian actor, 
he was in the trial of Nuremberg. Um, uh, anyway, he, he, we were sitting around the table and um, uh, Robert Oatman looked at the script and he went, uh, it was, and it was Arthur Miller's last script. And uh, Robert Oatman looked at the script and he said, uh, yeah, I've read this script. Um, it's kind of a weird play, isn't it? And uh, we were like, and I kind of thought, yeah, it is a bit weird. I don't know if it really works, uh, but I like my character. And uh, he said, uh, yeah, he said, it's kind of a weird play. He said, uh, I don't really know if it works. And uh, we were all, everyone was just kind of like, and uh, he said, yeah, he said, the ending's really weird. He said, uh, I've only read it once. He said, and I'll tell you right now, I won't be reading it again. <laughs> and he was not lying. <laughs> and I remember just thinking, this is going to be fucking shit. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, anyway, I could write a full book on that production itself. But I just remember thinking in that moment, oh, God, I wish I was doing a film with you. Yeah. <laughs> not a play. <laughs> Tell me this, right? You've done a few productions in the UK and you're based here for all intents and purposes. Right? I live here, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I know you've, you do the odd thing back in Ireland, but for, for the most part you're here. How important was the move over to the UK for you as an actor or as a creative person? I guess it was um, important, but I did it very kind of unconsciously, I didn't go, right, I'm going to London. I'm going to, you know, I kind of ended up living here and I kind of had, to, at the time I didn't want to move here. It was kind of late 90s Dublin and Dublin had just turned into, into this brilliant place and I was having a great time. Uh, and also I was making loads of films in Ireland. I made uh, um, Saltwater there, and I made a film called One Brandon Trudy, and, uh, and they were all doing well at the box office, and Irish people were going to see them, which is a really important thing, and something we try to achieve at the stack, that, you know, you make films in Ireland, and Irish people go to see them, because it's so hard to get people to actually go to the, the, um, the cinema, um, especially when you're competing against uh, huge Hollywood films. But um, I... I found that I was doing so much work here that basically I kind of had to base myself here. And then within a year, I was like, I live here. Um, so it was literally the work that drew me here rather than me going, I have to go to London. Um, and I, I, I resisted it, to be honest with you. But, you know, now I love London, you know. Do you think being here has changed how you work as an actor or a writer in any way? I don't know about an actor, uh, how I work as an actor. I think I've met loads of people. And also when you're in Dublin, you know, you, you, the acting community is of a certain size. When you get to the UK, it's so much bigger, but actually you do get to know most people after five, six years. If you're working enough, you, you will get to meet a lot, a lot of people, um, which is great and work with loads of different, really talented actors and directors. The theater scene in London is probably the best in the world. Um, so that's very good uh, in terms of uh, acting experience. Um, 
Oh yeah, but in terms of writing and directing, whenever I sit down to write something or whenever an idea comes into my head, um, it's always Irish. I never start thinking, okay, there's this guy who lives an Irish actor in London, or yeah, this guy who lives in Barnes or whatever. It could be an Irish character in London, but I always start with the idea of uh, the, the character and the person is Irish which is totally unconscious. I just, because that's I'm, I'm much more uh, easily accessible to me. So um, it's naturally where I start. Do you think you've been in any way influenced by, say, the pace of the city or the scale of the city? Do you think that's influenced any, any of your choices, either as a writer or, or an actor? Or are you saying that essentially you will return to what you know and how you, how you became a for, in your formative years became an actor and a writer? that you'll look back to Ireland. Um, you mean in terms of what I'm writing? Well, I mean, it strikes me that like a lot of people in the audience that have careers in, in creative industries or non-creative industries, different industries, have experienced a different way of life in London and it's influenced probably them as people and as professionals. Because it's hard not to, um, to soak it up. You know, people move faster. People expect answers quicker. You know, there's not the kind of... Um, uh, if not laborious nature of being back home, but certainly people take their time. And that's a nice thing. It's a nice thing yeah. about Ireland. People take their time. And, and here there's less time given to you for everything, in every walk of life. You're always in someone's way and someone's always in your way. I'm yeah. intrigued how in someone in, in your line of work, whether that's made any difference to you uh, or not. Well, yeah, it is an interesting question because I've, I've never thought about it in terms of the actual practice of acting um I, I hope not because the first thing you have to learn in acting above everything else is you have to listen to what the other actors are saying um, because if you're not you're, you're both fucked um that's the key and you always know when you're working with an actor who's listening to you um so you have to, it's almost you know you have to kind of clear your mind of everything else that could be happening to you and just focus on what's happening in the scene. Um, in terms of your expectations of how you're going to get things made and stuff like that, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it makes it pushier and harder. And uh, um, I get, I suppose, also, you just have to do it. You know, um, I, I was talking about directing and writing for like four years or five years or whatever. And, um, but until you make the first phone call of, you know, hey, listen, what are you doing on Saturday? You know, um, or can you, do you know a sound guy? You know, that kind of thing, you know, to make your first short film, you're not doing anything. You've got to stop thinking about it and, and do it. So when we made the stag, uh, and myself and John had the idea, we had tried to write a couple of other things, um, we had done treatments for other films before that, but we just didn't feel that they were right. And we always felt we knew, we'd know when it was right. And uh, on that, we, we kind of knew, you just know in your bones when it's going to work for you because we had to find it funny and something that we could really feel as a film. Um, well, once we had that idea, we were just like, because we were at that stage in our lives, we were like, we're not going to waste any time in this. We're not going to take any development money we're going to write it, we'll have treatment by the end of August, 
and then we'll start to, to ride it, and it'll only take us around four or five weeks to do it, and we were making it by November. So that made us very pushy, you know, and John's a great ally in terms of doing that, and the way we would have worked was we'd have a Word document, and we'd write on it, and um, date it, I'd send it to him, he'd work on it, date it, send it back to me, I'd work on it, and then we'd have telephone conversations in between, so things move really, really quickly. And when you've got someone giving you back what you wrote on yesterday with knobs on the day after, it really, you know, really fires you up to get back into it, you know. And, and we, we interviewed John Butler a couple of months ago and he, he told us essentially the same thing. And I, it, for those of you who don't know, in terms of film development, the, uh, the, the creation and to production schedule of the stag is kind of unprecedented. It's really, really admirable to go from idea to film in the theatre in that, that length of time. And it's kind of interesting because John Butler already spent uh, a bit of time in the States as well. And, and I wonder whether it's, it's that thing that people, people often say Irish people uh, benefit from living and working abroad. It broadens the mind yeah, and all yeah, that much. Yeah. Um, which is probably true, but like it's it's certainly great to see Irish creative people um, benefit in that way, in in the way that you both did, and created such a fantastic film and a real success story. Because it's you know, and there are a huge amount of films made every year, feature films in Ireland, but very few reach the success that the Stag did. And so it's definitely something you should be really really proud of. It's very oh, awkward you. giving you a compliment while I'm looking at no, you. No, no, please eyes. do. Just look, keep, look keep, over keep there. Keep coming. <laughs> um, um, it, it, well, it, it's 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 been an, uh, a, a real treat for me to uh, talk to Peter because I'm such a fan of his work. Again, I'm not going to look at him in the eye. Look over <laughs> here. Ah, the two English people over there. Um, but uh, this being an opportunity for anyone in the audience that would like to ask uh, Academy no Award nominee Peter MacDonald uh, any questions about his uh, personal life, um, his loves and fears. Particularly my personal life. His internet browsing history. Um, if you do have a quick question for Peter, um, please raise your hand and then ask that question. That would be fantastic. Um, bear in mind that I have pretty bad eyesight. Um, does anybody have a question for Peter? Oh, lady in the front. Hello there, Shane here. Just uh, jumping in very quickly and quietly because when we were putting on this chat with Peter um, uh, in the venue, when we were doing the Q&A with the audience, we didn't actually have a microphone down in the audience that would pick up um, the questions that the audience members were asking. So I'm just going to reiterate what those questions are now very quickly. Um, so the first question that our audience asked was, uh, is it harder or easier to play roles that are very much so like yourself or is it harder or is it easier to play roles that are very different from yourself interesting questions because uh, sometimes the role closer to you is kind of harder to play um, but I think that even if you're playing someone who's a million miles away from you um, like I've played killers and things like that in the past, I'm always in a weird way using an element of myself. Though obviously I'm not a killer or I'm going to hurt anyone. There's obviously parts of all of us that are um, just tiny facets of ourselves, you know, where you're cruel or um, unthinking and you just multiply that by a thousand. And uh, sometimes that's more fun um, 
but it really depends on how the piece is written. Um, if a piece is written well and you have a good director, um, I guess the trick of acting uh, is to make it look like you're not acting. And the irony is, is that that requires a lot of acting. <laughs> so um, uh, a friend of mine calls it um, downhill acting. The actor should always be acting downhill, not in a, um, a complacent way, but the audience shouldn't be doing the work. <laughs> you know, shouldn't be watching the actor go uphill. Um, so, uh, in answer to your question, I think in general it's probably harder to play the guy that, that, that you're closer to, but sometimes that's even more fun because, uh, especially if it's an Irish character or somebody from where I'm from, you know, uh, in the city and stuff like that. That's, uh, it's interesting when we were, uh, auditioning people for the stag, um, because a lot of the characters in the, um, Stagger from South Dublin. I think people thought it was a, a satire because of the Russell Carroll Kelly uh, and business and all that. And some people naturally went there. And you went, no, 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 it's just, just be yourself, you know? And then they did it and it sounded fine. Of course, we were thinking when we heard them first, oh shit, it's, it's crap. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the things that are closer to home are sometimes the the hardest ones to, to represent properly. Is there another question? Our next uh, questioner asked uh, specifically about the film The Stag that Peter wrote with John Butler and how he had previously talked about them um, throwing a, a Word document back and forth over email to sort of create a treatment for the film. And our questioner wanted to know how, how much of that treatment, how, how similar was the end product of the movie to that treatment? and how much of it changed uh, during the physical scripting process. The finished film is like, was 70% there in the, the initial treatment. Um, we had the characters, uh, what we did with the treatment was that uh, we had a rule that um, you can't write dialogue in the treatment. Um, even though we might be saying it to each other over the phone, you couldn't like, you know, act one, scene one, and you had to explain what happened. The rule was you couldn't write any dialogue because it, if it's a funny line or something like that, it can paper over problems that you, you're not facing up to in terms of the story and what you think is actually happening between the characters. Um, so going through that process, especially the two of us, you know, pushing each other on, it was very, very rigorous, and it happened in a blaze of creativity. Um, and uh, so in answer to the first part of the question, it was around 70% there. In answer to the second part of the question, um, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say, and I think part of the, the fact that it happened so quickly and it was done in such a creative kind of maelstrom with all the actors that we knew and everyone just getting on board. No one got paid that much money. We were, we had hardly, you know, nobody had trailers or any of this kind of business. Um, there was such a kind of forward momentum on a film like that. This, um, that's bound up in my experience of what the film is. Um, and I'd love to make films with more money, but with that same sense of 
getting it done quickly because the film business is so slow moving. It takes four years for, you know, from script to getting it into a, a, a theater. Um, but I feel like there wasn't much in, in, in terms of development, there wasn't much input from other people. You felt like you made the film that you wanted to make. That's, I guess what I'm trying to say is that in cases of that film, yeah, we made the film we wanted to make uh, with all of the people coming on, who came onto the, the project, bringing their sense of that vision to us and, and making it better um, from our point of view. Uh, but I think I'd have to watch it in like five years and then probably go, mm, you know, but um, I, I didn't feel like we left anything on the field, if you know what I mean. Uh, and I, there's nothing in the film and I have been in things where I see things and I go, oh God, I really wish that wasn't there. But I don't, I don't feel that when I, when I watch the stag. And it was also such an audience film that um, when audiences were enjoying it, it was working for me. Because you, you really experience it through their eyes. You know? It's really weird when you test screen movies, you, you learn so much, it's unbelievable how much you learn. I mean, it's not a case of trying to you know, trick the audience into liking the film. They teach you so much. It's like a preview on the first night of theater. You know, you do a play, and um, you know you've been doing it for five weeks in the rehearsal. I don't know. Are you an actor, a director, right? You you know about this. You know, you're you're doing a play for like six weeks in the in the rehearsal room, and um, you think there's one or two places where there's going to be laughs, and then you know someone comes in the door and you know an entrance in a scene and goes. The traffic out there is only horrendous, or some line like that. And they get an enormous laugh. And it's only in that moment, you're looking in their eyes, they're looking in your eyes and go, fuck, yeah, that's actually really funny. That line is actually really funny. And you don't realize it until it happens. And then every night they come on, they get the same laugh. And then the night that they don't get it, they go, I'm, I'm fucked it. <laughs> and I'm going to have to start doing it differently. <laughs> Um, are, are there any more questions from the audience? Well, the right-hand side of the crowd definitely won with two questions. Well done, right-hand side. Stupid left-hand. Oh, sorry. Two questions from the left-hand side of the crowd. Dude with the shirt. Shirt? T-shirt. Shirt. Hold on. Shirt? It's shirt. Okay. My third question wants to know how Peter decides what roles he takes and what roles he doesn't take and how he weighs up whether he's willing to do commercial roles uh, over more maybe satisfying indie roles. It's a tricky question. I mean, if you really feel like you, you can't see yourself in the part, um, it's, it's probably something you should avoid. Um, However, in the, if you're playing the game of the film business, um, you know, if you do a part in some film that you, know, you don't think is the greatest but gets huge exposure, and then the financiers are looking at you know, the next film you're up for, and the only thing they care about is, um, okay, this guy's playing the second lead. His name's Peter MacDonald. Who is he? He's... Lord Shitface in Clash of the Bongos. And, you know, that's just taken, 
you know, 700 million, you know, at the box office and it was made for 60. Um, and they go, okay, right, we all take the box. All the financiers will take the box and um, you can get the part or else you go and try and make something like the stag and um, it's a lot easier to make because we made the stag for, we didn't, we didn't use industry money in the stag, we just used money from the film board and finished off the financing within Ireland. But like none of us in that film, Andrew included, hold any weight realistically in the film business. So if you go around to sales companies and they're trying to sell the film to international audiences, because basically once the film is made, the sales company takes the film on and then goes around to all the distributors at different festivals and they do deals as to whether they want to buy the, buy the film or not. Um, and um, the sales company will just go, okay, who's in the cast? They look at the cast and they go, okay, you've got no one. Um, so if you do get offered a chance like that, you do have to balance it out in that way um, because it will actually lead to other work and good work getting made. Uh, but it depends on how, how damaging it is to your soul, <laughs> if you can stomach it. On the other side, have there been any roles that you've turned down that you subsequently regret turning down? TV or film? Maybe one or two, yeah. Um, I can't say what they are, though, because somebody else played them, you know, so... Um, worse, they played them yeah, worse. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. 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 And believe me, you know, when you get offered a part, you know, you may not be the first person to get offered it, you know. Um, but uh, I don't have any regrets in relation to any of that stuff. Um, it's a real journey, uh, acting, and you always have to kind of be kind of kicking on with it. And do, you, it. do you feel like those early days setting up um, Fly By Night Theatre Group influenced how you behave now as a professional actor? I think, yeah, in terms of the fact that we, you know, I, I went on to, to make some of my own stuff and, and fully intend to, to continue to do that. So um, it, it may have had an effect uh, in, in relation to that. And also there was a closeness there with the writers um, and they were really good with actors, you know, really really perceptive on what actors brought to their writing. And really good writers, to me, they write for good actors. They trust that they don't have to over-explain it or that the actor will come in and act this bit. You know, and so then as an actor, you read it and you go, oh yeah, that totally makes sense because he doesn't need to say anything other than that. Or I can see why she's left, you know. They, they factored it in, whereas bad writers, they're just trying to get the story on the fucking line. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh God, how do I say this line? You know, it's, you know, we already know this, you know, um, or we don't care, yeah. you know. Um, and if you do come across something like that, it, yeah, the best thing to do is just say it. Full conviction. <laughs> and then hopefully they'll edit it out. <laughs> Peter, we've been brothers for 10 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, when our father died <laughs> six years ago, I remember you said to me at the funeral when mummy had cancer. You gave me that book. You gave me that book, yes, <laughs> that I um, had written. I'm conscious that it's 
absolutely roasting up here. Yeah, so uh-huh. I know there was one more question, if it's all right with you, person that has asked that question in their mind and is about to ask it in real life. You will be the last question. Um, so I hope you enjoy asking the last question. It's very warm. Pick a good one. Warm. Um, blurry person. Our final audience question was specifically about Peter's uh, short film, Pentecost, which was nominated for an Oscar. And our questioner wanted to know what is the process uh, that a film goes through uh, to get to the point where it's uh, nominated for an Oscar? It's funny when you, um, I mean, obviously when I made that film, I had no idea that I was going to get Oscar nominated. But the, the moment you have any connection to the Oscars, it becomes it gets stuck to your name <laughs> really, really quickly. So if you win one, you know, it's like twice as bad. Um, Pentecost I made um, uh, on a uh, scheme from the Irish film board called Frameworks. Um, they give it to like four films every year, roughly. Um, and you get a nice budget. Uh, it was roughly 60 grand. Um, um, make the film, finish it off. It goes to a bunch of festivals. And either you win a festival that is Oscar designated, or else you play your film for, I think it's like three consecutive nights, don't quote me on this, um, at a commercial theater in the Los Angeles area um, within the, year, the time period of the um, Oscar selection year. And it is then technically uh, qualified for selection for the um, short film or feature film category, um, whichever film it is. And uh, they're the two ways that you can qualify as a short film. And then your film gets um, watched by a selection committee of uh, the short film branch of the Academy. They pick a shortlist of 10 films and the, then the larger Academy members watch those 10 films and nominate five. And then you're not, then you're, if you're in that group, you're one of the nominees. You kind of feel like it's a game in a way, that whole system. Do you feel like it's, it's, it's unfair on the films that don't go through that process? Do you think it's an accurate representation of what the best work is? I know the question was specifically, in the like short, how do you go about yeah, getting, in the short an film In the short film category, um, it is open because um, you don't, they're not going to be, people aren't going to be making money from the films in terms of commercial releases. Um, and also they're short films, they're not features, there aren't, uh, you know, careers on the line or directors or agents, uh, etc. Although they can come in involved but you will get a bit of show business going on. In the Did you find that? Yeah, it does happen. I mean... Uh, like in what sense? I mean, like... Certain, you know, it depends on who you know in Hollywood. You know, um, who do you get to vote for the film? Can you count? Like people run campaigns for their short films in, you know, an Oscar campaign for their short film. So they try and rally people to vote and they put up... They try and organize um, academy screenings in different places of the short films. Right. Um, but that's 
totally natural and to be expected. But then when you multiply it into the feature world, it's a whole other ballgame. Nobody gets nominated for an Oscar for free. It's, you know, yeah. it's, it's a big deal. It's a gilt edge uh, thing. It's, you know, one of the biggest show business nights of the year. And um, that stuff isn't happening just, oh, you know, I think that's the best film of the year. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, that's yeah. not the way it works. Um, but, you know, in a kind of way, I don't know if that's, that is how it should work. Because, you know, that's not the way show business works. Yeah. You know, so it should reflect that. Um, and, uh, like, you know, Harvey Weinstein is one of the masters of the Oscar campaign and who votes for what and why. And, you know, people have dinners and hosts, you know, uh, you know, Glenn and John and all those, you know, they were, they were whisked around town and brought into dinner parties by big stars and played their song and then whisked out the back door. You know, and like, isn't that a great song? That's up in the outcome. You know, that kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? And great, you know, I mean, everyone else would be doing it. Yeah. You know, uh, you're not allowed to solicit for votes, but, you know, you've got friends in Hollywood or you don't have friends in Hollywood or, you know, people are pushing. And a lot of the Academy members are over a certain age and a certain um, uh, demographic. And, you know, you have to go around and press the flesh. Like, you have to campaign. If you don't campaign, I, I mean, I've never had to do this, but the word on the street is, you know, if you don't campaign, you just kiss the thing goodbye. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like that, that answered your Sorry. question? Yeah. Uh, Are you a filmmaker? No. Yeah. Would you like to be in films? But I, I, I knew none of this when I, when I made the short film and I had to learn it all as, as I went along. Um, uh, but it, it is something you need to get your head around. Um, it is really, really hot, right? It's not just me. Yeah. It is, yeah. It's I just really, felt really under pressure or something. <laughs> well, uh, up here. it's been my absolute privilege to have Peter as a guest. I think he's, uh, again, we won't look at you, but look this way. No, look uh, at me. I look think into Peter's my soul. made <laughs> some of the best work. I want to see those eyes. <laughs> We're not finishing until some of the Irish TV and film that I've enjoyed the most. Me. And he is a very nice person to boot. And uh, thank you very much for listening, listening so patiently all night. And we hope that you had a, a, a good evening. And uh, please join me in thanking Peter MacDonald as our Q&A guest tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Neil chatting to Peter MacDonald at the 100 Club last year. Um, Cool. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Um, thanks for being here, Neil. Thank I know you. I don't have for, to thank you. No, it's nice. You're, thank you're you. duty bound. But uh, thanks thank, for being here. Thank, thank you. So when I when I thank you for being here, it sounds like I think I'm the senior host. It's I not. Think, the, it's not the case. It's fine. Does you, it come across that I think I'm the senior host? Uh, now it does, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like that's you know that's just an anxiety I have that people will think that I think that, but I don't. That's fine. I, I mean, don't think that. you're perfectly entitled to think that. Well, you, I mean, you just sat there and chatted to to, um, to to Peter for for you know ninety percent of the show. So you know, I think you're definitely. I work for you. you work, yeah, <laughs> you know that's mean? pretty much it, isn't it? No. Anyway, sorry. That's just, just it ran through my head there when I thanked you for being here. It's fine. That, it's that's a- what you do to someone who. You know, is doing me a favour by being here. Shane, I, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Oh God, I'm really down now. <laughs> um, anyway, 
on that note, thanks so much for downloading and listening to the show uh, this week. Um, make sure you hit, rate, subscribe, and comment on iTunes. Please, please do it. Please do it. It really helps us. And uh, we're on all sorts of uh, social media platforms. Any social media platform that anyone in their early 30s could be reasonably expected to understand, we're on it. Anything outside of that bracket, I can't guarantee. Um, the weekly GM is the handle pretty much across the board. Um, do you want to take us out on the uh, the old sort of? <laughs> do you, I don't know what what I'm... I was you know I, was, I thought you know I just felt again like I was talking too much and I was talking <laughs> the thing. I was going to give you the opportunity to say the podcast is produced by Eilish oh, Bracken. Yeah, can I do that? Go for it. Okay, the podcast is produced by Eilish Bracken. How's that? It's good. Yeah. Now, do you want to say that it's engineered and mixed by Emma Butt? Okay, the podcast is engineered and mixed by Emma Butt. Now, do you want to thank our sponsors? I'd like to thank our sponsors. <laughs> okay, now tell, tell, tell everyone that we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. And <clears throat> I don't know about you, but, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get like a little catchphrase sign-off of chat to you then. <laughs> really? Well, no, I just found that I might be saying it. I said it, like, I think I found myself saying it a bit. And then I thought, yeah, that's pretty good. That's not too bad. Chat to you then. Cool. Do you want to give that a go? Say your, ca- your catchphrase. Try my catchphrase. Okay, I'll do it as you. Chat to you then. <laughs> Chat to you then. <laughs>